I'm Marty Moscowain. Welcome to The Connection. Loneliness is painful, isolating, and often difficult to acknowledge and discuss. Our guest, Jeremy Nobel, says it's the most human of feelings and a call to creative self-expression and connection. That's from the premise to his new book, Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. He says there are three kinds of lonely, psychological, a yearning to connect with others, societal, being an outcast or marginalized by the larger group, and existential, which is about finding purpose and meaning in life. Jeremy Nobel also offers three steps he says will reduce loneliness, being curious about the world and others, making things, yes, literally making things, which unlocks our brain's creative pathways, and having authentic conversations about things that really matter. So today on The Connection, Creativity's Healing Powers. Jeremy Nobel is a primary care physician, public health practitioner. He's a poet and faculty at Harvard Medical School, founder and president of the Foundation for Art and Healing. And Jeremy Nobel, nice to have you with us today on The Connection. Marty, it's a pleasure to be here, connected with you. (laughs) I know, we're really going to milk this word uh, during the hour. Let me start with stigma. And one of the things that you write in this book is that there has been, and still is, a lot of stigma around loneliness. How come? Where does that come from? Well, I think traditionally when people felt they were lonely, they often felt it was their fault, that there was something wrong with them. They were flawed, they were inadequate, and that's why they didn't have the social connections they wanted to have. Now, even after the pandemic made it okay to say you're lonely, because in a sense, during the pandemic, we were lonely because we were isolating ourselves to protect not just ourselves, our families, our neighbors, the community from a virus. So for that little window of time, it was okay to say you were lonely because it wasn't because you were flawed. It was because you were were trying to do the civic thing. How do you define loneliness? And I ask that because I think it's such a subjective thing. It's You can't put it under a microscope. Everyone has their own kind of unique way of feeling loneliness if they are lonely. How do you see it? How do you define it? Well, first, that's so important that we understand, Marty, that being lonely is not the same thing as being alone. Right. Being alone is this objective state where you just lack social connection with other people. It's not always a despairing state, but it can be. Being lonely is very subjective. It's how we feel about the gap between the social connections we would like to have, what we aspire to, sometimes we even dream about, and what we feel we do have. So that's what loneliness is. And it's, as I said in my book, one of the most human of feelings that we want connections with other people. Where it becomes both a personal and a public health challenge is when it begins to spiral out of control and becomes severe, chronic, and persistent. And that's what we need to be on guard about. Absolutely. What's the connection? This is something that you write, which I thought was really interesting, between loneliness and uncertainty. How does uncertainty Mm. fuel or feed loneliness? Right. So, you know, our brains are kind of very helpful organs for us that guide us through the world with a major goal, and that's to help us survive. And as we navigate the challenges of the world, you know, so 20,000 years ago, maybe it was predators. Now it's other kinds of things. We're always wondering what's around the corner and do I understand what's around the corner and how to protect myself? So 
even in conditions of certainty, there are things to be alarmed and careful about. But in uncertainty, our brains are always on high alert. So we understand about fight and flight. You know, I think most people understand that there are things that tip us over into very high stages of anxiety. In times of uncertainty, we're much closer to that fight or flight threshold than we usually are. And that's why the uncertainty of the last several years, the continued uncertainty in the world, has actually brought us and our brains hmm. to a very sharp edge of wanting to withdraw from the trauma, the anxiety, the discomfort of uncertainty. And that leads to marginalization, self-done, you know, self-achieved, but also makes people very lonely. That's a big risk. As you say, being lonely is part of, of being human. You also say it, it's not an illness. And it is something, I think, that has been pathologized. And yet, feeling lonely can make us ill. How so? Well, as I mentioned, the occasional twinge of loneliness that you want more human connection can be incredibly helpful as a signal that we should be doing something about it. Just like thirst is a signal that we need hydration, loneliness is a signal that human beings need to be connected to other human beings. Where it becomes a problem where we, we fail to respond to that signal, either because we don't know how or the circumstances are not available for us to become more connected to others, and we become a little bit lonelier. Now, the lonely brain actually in itself is on high alert. It's cautious. It tends to withdraw a little bit from other people. So you can imagine a, a spiral where a little bit of loneliness unresolved makes us lonelier, that makes us withdraw even more and so on. And that's what leads to this very toxic state of chronic or severe loneliness. That's what we need to be vigilant about and learn the, to, to, to observe early in ourselves, our friends, our neighbors, and do what we can to address it early and effectively. Well, as I mentioned in my introduction, you described three kinds of loneliness, psychological, sociological, and existential. Let's start, start with psychological, wanting to connect and with others, wanting to be known by others. Uh, how important is that? So, so psychological loneliness, the sense that we, we all want someone to tell our troubles to, someone to have our back, to feel we can confide in someone, that is what most people think about when they think about loneliness. Right. You know, where is a friend, a confidant, you know, someone I trust, someone I, you know, I feel cares about me? And certainly a lack of psychological connection or emotional, authentic connection to others is the core problem. It's a, it's a really important part of loneliness. But these other types of loneliness are increasing and worrisome also. So the second type, societal loneliness, do I feel systematically excluded by others because of some condition or trait or circumstance about me? Often something I might view as kind of superficial, mm. you know, like, um, you know, do I have, uh, do I not conform to the conventional beauty myth? Am I not attractive? Or some deeper issues of difference like race or gender or disability. So that's very different than not feeling you have an individual friend or someone you feel you can connect and confide in. It's the sense that when you're entering a room filled with strangers, that your arrival may not be welcome. It may not be safe. So and that's something that taken to scale is racism, 
It's anti fill in the blank. And that's something that makes people very lonely. And thinking of bullying as well, right? Well, absolutely. If that bullying, uh, which is very traumatic, is because you're being picked on because of some superficial characteristic that really doesn't necessarily have anything to do about you personally, but still makes you the focus of hostility, anger, and sometimes violence. So we withdraw from that. And it's a significant type of loneliness. You also describe existential or spiritual loneliness. What is that about? So I think this has also been around for a long time. Um, the sense, what, are we connected to the bigger story of the human situation? Does our life, what some people call, are we connected to the universe or connected to God and so on? And within that um, struggle for connection, we often wonder, does my life have meaning and purpose? Does my life have consequence? And if you have growing uncertainty about that, as I think many do in the modern world, then it's a sense of floating floating in this network of uncertainty and not just about connection to others, but also connection to ourselves. Well, let me pick up on that because I think that's such an important thing. We often think think about loneliness and connection to other people. But as you write in this book, it's it also has an impact on our connection to ourselves, how we treat ourselves, how we understand ourselves. All of those things. And do we feel comfortable in our own skin? So as we go out into the world and navigate the challenges and the constant uncertainty and changes, do we feel we can rely on ourselves, on our own judgment, on our own personal North Star to navigate us through all the decisions we have to make all day? And if we feel confident and comfortable with that and a good relationship to ourselves, it's much easier to connect with other people because you can present your identity, who you are with confidence, with calm, with assuredness. And then other people can locate who you are. They can resonate with that. They can share aspects of themselves back to you. And an authentic connection can happen. Without that, it becomes very difficult to navigate your way. And so feeling comfortable with who you are, your relationship with yourself, as you say, I think is a fundamental, Mm. fundamental challenge. Do you think there's something unique about Americans and loneliness in that we are a country that prizes individuality and, and, you know, people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And now we've got such a politically divided country that it, it, it is disconnecting ourselves, I think, from each other. But do you think we're uniquely lonely when you look around the world? You know, that's a really wonderfully important question. Uh, you know, I think I think we are ahead of the rest of the world in certain ways about loneliness. Maybe it is tied, Marty, to what you said, which is the American tradition of autonomy and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and non-reliance on others being kind of valued, praised often. But I also think the rest of the world is moving rapidly in the same direction, and we should be concerned about that. What What is the prevailing comfort level people have of declaring their identity to other people? It's become so challenging. You worry about saying who you are authentically, not just because you might be judged, but you might be the victim or the target of anger, hatred, even violence. And so there's become a caution 
that many experience in the modern world to say who they are, which obviously is the basis of being recognized and then the gateway to authentic connection. It's a, it's a growing problem. About a minute before our, our first break here, but that leads very logically to social media where, you know, there it's just kind of a, 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 a boxing match, a free fight on social media in terms of people saying something about themselves and then the negative response they often get. Absolutely. And particularly in certain demographics, younger people, for instance, where social media is a channel to test out different identities, but often it becomes very performative, almost viewing the greater social media audience as a panel of judges constantly assessing who we are. Are we good enough? And and handing out uh, reposts and likes as a kind of prize. And, and so the, and then we compare ourselves or often Younger people compare themselves to their peers and feel inadequate, ashamed, uh, unworthy of social attention, and it becomes, again, another potentially dark spiral. Well, we've been talking about loneliness, but we are going to talk about um, the creativity of some of the healing arts and how it can address the problem of loneliness. And again, our guest is Jeremy Nobel. He's got a new book. It's called Project Unlonely. Uh, excuse me, Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. And we've got music therapist Yoka Brunt joining us after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Marty Moscoway, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. And today on the show, uh, using the arts creative expression to heal loneliness which, as we have been talking about, is a very common and a very human feeling. And I've been talking with Jeremy Nobel. He's a primary care physician, a public health practitioner. He's a poet, faculty at Harvard Medical School, president of the Foundation for Art and Healing. And we've been talking about his new book called Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. Joining us now is Yoka Brat. She's a professor and program director of the Ph.D. in Creative Arts Therapies program at Drexel University. She's also a board-certified music therapist, and her federally funded research has focused on the use of music therapy to manage chronic pain. We'll talk about how playing an instrument, singing, or even humming a song, or listening to a favorite piece of music can be powerful medicine. And Yoka Brat, nice to have you with us Hi, today Marty. on The Connection. Nice to have you with us on the show. Jeremy, let me just quickly go back to you because I want to segue from our discussion about uh, loneliness to what you say as our sort of way out of loneliness. One is being curious to making something, really making anything, and three, having conversations that mean something, telling our story to people who want to know who we are, who we feel connected with. And that, of course, builds trust. There's risk associated, but there's also the rewards of, of sharing that parts of ourself. Can you just flesh that out very quickly, and then I want to get Yoka in on our conversation. Sure. Well, as we navigate the world, as we said earlier, it can often be a very scary, uh, confusing place. And so how do we navigate that? How do we find what really matters to ourselves? And that's where curiosity comes in. What is it 
that we find truly interesting about the world that piques our attention? And how do we follow that and try to learn more about it and our relationship to that? So lots of things to be curious about, but then it often brings us in touch with our thoughts and feelings of what we're trying to pay attention to. And that's where making things, particularly mm -hmm. creative things, whether it's a, a, um, a dance move or a poem or a doodle or a drawing, the important aspect of the making is it puts all of the different parts of our cognition to focus on the intersection sometimes between our conscious and our unconscious sense of the world and very interesting things can emerge. And so you make something as a symbol of that new discovery and that's what you have the conversations around that are inevitably authentic, personal and meaningful and a way to engage not just with other people but with yourself. And the arts are a very, very powerful catalyst for that whole journey. Well, let's talk about music. Um, Yoko, we, we all know what music is. <laughs> um, and, and some make music. I think most of us enjoy music in, in some form or another. How do you see music as part of this creative expression? So uh, I'll actually tag on to what Jeremy just said about the importance of making things to yeah. combat loneliness. So I work with a lot of people with chronic health conditions. And there is, of course, a lot of loneliness. But also, um, very often, their chronic health conditions are uh, detrimental to their social world, their social relationships, or so social relationships begin to crumble. And so, uh, Jeremy, in my work and in my research, we emphasize a lot the crea creative engagement with music. So rather than only listening to music, truly creative music making together with others to um, find those connections again, to find also a common ground to experience and process emotional emotions and uh, maybe emotional trauma that is connected to the chronic health conditions. So I agree with you that creative engagement is so important because in many chronic health conditions, there's a lot of loss, right? Loss of maybe autonomy, loss of relationships. And so creatively engaging, making something kind of contrast with that deep sense of loss that many people uh, might experience. Because it takes you out of yourself or perhaps in this case, out of your pain. I mean, pain seems to draw attention to itself. I mean, mm -hmm. th that's the difficulty of dealing with pain, which is it's just always sort of gnawing and nagging at you. Yeah, true. So music can help you or, or other creative acts can help you refocus on something else, something positive, right? But um, it's interesting you bring that up, Marty, because in my work, I also try to help people reconnect with their body in a different way. Because when you're in severe pain or chronic pain, you try to escape from that body, right? That body is an enemy. Uh, you don't really want to be connected with that body anymore. And so in our work, we try to use things like humming and toning to help people reconnect with their body in a positive way. So for example, in yeah, humming, people will, will um, often describe how peaceful that is or how peaceful they feel. Hum just to hum, just for like a tune or 30 seconds. And especially when you do it together with other people, it just creates a deep sense of peace. And uh, we use that opportunity to then um, talk about how using your own body, that, that body that has you know, uh, cheated on you with your chronic betrayed pain, you. or betrayed yes. you, I guess is a better word. Thank you. Uh, how that body can create a positive experience for you and help you create a sense of calm and peacefulness. 
Jeremy, let me go back to you. You, you write poetry and, and you describe, um, quote, to be in the moment that the, the act of writing a poem sort of draws you into this moment of creativity. Perhaps the world disappears and it's just you and your words and the page. Uh, flesh that out for us. Sure. I think that is one of the most powerful things about the arts is to hold your attention, particularly in a world where our attention feels continuously divided and we have to navigate it through continuous partial attention. That's not the way it is when you're listening, not just making, but listening to beautiful music. You're totally in that moment of experience. That's such relief to our brain, which is usually pulled in different directions. So that's, I think, the first stage of where art can be healing. But then it often takes you to the next stage, which is a kind of inspiration, a kind of motivation to something bigger and larger. And then the empowerment, the sense that you can achieve that. This is all happening in the flow of hormonal output, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, endorphins, the so-called feel-good hormones. And then ultimately within that, you can often feel very connected hmm. to yourself, to others, and the bigger universe of human experience. If creative arts were a pharmaceutical, it would be a billion-dollar blockbuster <laughs> drug. But it's not, sadly. <laughs> but what you're saying, Jeremy, is that it's essentially the same pathways for art and social connection when it comes to these feel-good hormones? Absolutely. And the other very powerful neuroactivity of the arts is to change how we make sense of the world, so-called social cognition. So as we go through the world, sometimes when we're in a dark mood, we see the world in a through a very dark set of lenses. The arts, actually, it's been shown through a functional MRI scan, creative arts overlap and impact the same parts of the brain as the parts of the brain that determine what we, how we make sense of the world, what we hmm. see, whether we see the world as a set of threats or a set of opportunities. So it shouldn't surprise us that a powerful piece of music or a stirring poem, poem or an amazing dance performance makes us feel optimistic. It makes us feel encouraged to explore the world with some enthusiasm and a sense of possibility. And that's available to all of us without a copay and without uh, without a prescription. Well, yeah, just underlining that there, but going back to you, Yoka, I mean, that is something so unique about music because it taps into, you know, every emotion known to human beings. Indeed, and actually, um, survey research has shown, uh, survey research that is trying to determine why people listen so much to music, right? right? We listen to music from the morning till the evening for different reasons. Sometimes it's in the background, sometimes while we exercise, sometimes to lift our mood or to relax. So why do people listen to music so much? And um, survey research has shown that the two most important reasons are the impact on our mood hmm. and mood regulation. So actively using music to change your mood. So if you're, uh, if you're in a bad mood or a depressed mood, music can truly lift your mood. And like Jeremy just said, see the world in a different way. But I think music also allows you to feel ver very validated in your emotions. So when I'm feeling really sad, I can listen to a really sad piece of mm. music and it's like a blanket is being wrapped around me and I feel better because the music understands me, the music is supporting me. So it, it's not only about shifting our emotions, but also truly feeling cared for 
by a particular piece of music. You and I were talking before going on the air about music and movement and sort of synchronicity and, and how that how that operates and how that feels. Mm-hmm. I want to have you talk about it on the air. Yeah, uh, just in terms of social connection, music appears to help with feeling connected with others in several ways, especially active music making. One, it does indeed uh, produce or, or help release oxytocin, like Jeremy just mentioned, and that's that you know bonding chemical that we have. Um, but there also seems to be um, a really important role for synchronizing movement. So when we play music together, apparently people gain great pleasure the moment our movements synchronize to a common musical beat, hmm. right? And that's and that's so why it feels good to play music with others. But I'm also thinking going to a concert, right? Where we all sing together, but we also sway together. We move together. We might all be pumping our arm together. It's, it's so many opportunities for synchronizing movement through a common musical beat. And that creates a really strong sense of cohesion and also musical identity. Does that make sense to you, Jeremy? Absolutely. And as a public health practitioner, what I love about what Yoka just described is it could be available to to almost anyone, routinely, low cost, fun, engaging, and at scale. And that's a very attractive option right now when you're considering the challenging world we're all navigating. Yeah. I'm also thinking of athletic events where there is a kind of synchronicity if you're all rooting for the same team or you're all doing the wave. Uh, Again, does that make sense to you, Yoga? Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking before, too, that even in individual athletic performance, a lot of, um, you know, um, athletes will listen to music to help with a synchronization of movement. Um, but yeah, certainly yeah. sports fans, we all hear the <laughs> chants together, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Having our hearts broken once again. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but nonetheless, let me go back to Yoko because I was also thinking about music and memory. There is something, and it's so unique to music, where you hear a song from your childhood, and if it meant something, we are transported back to a very specific time and place and often feeling that goes along with that. Um, Whereas so many memories are kind of foggy and and unclear, the music stuff seems to take us back in such a vivid kind of way. Yeah, and I was recently... Uh, recently reading that those the formation of those autobiographical memories that music can be able can pull back right you know you bring you right back to that mo- brings you right back to that moment that if there's strong emotional connections to that autobiographical event and you were listening to music at the same time yeah. that that's kind of really cements that memory into your brain. But you are right, um, music has an incredible power of doing that. And if you uh, probably seen videos of people with dementia, with Alzheimer's, being certainly transposed back to in a moment. And it's often, we often try to use music from their late teens, early adulthood, can truly bring um, these people uh, yeah, back memories. And it's so important with that disease because if you're robbed of memories, you're basically robbed of your identity because your identity is made up of memories. Absolutely. Right? And I'm wondering too, Jeremy, thinking about the sort of, as you described, the kind of various territories of, of, of loneliness and one being the aging process, which is, which is difficult because 
it is so much about loss and coming to terms with loss um, and feeling lonely as a result of that. Um, how can some of the creative arts help us through that difficult time? I, I think they're. I think the creative arts and our natural uh, support system for aging, as you mentioned, it's a time of loss. We lose friends, we lose physical, sometimes uh, cognitive capabilities, but it's also a time where something is gained. Call it insight, wisdom, mm -hmm. some kind of synthesis of life experience. And what music and the arts in general often accompany that process in a way that integrates it in our own understanding and allows us to share it with others, be helpful to others. Many of our programs in Project Unlonely are intergenerational, and to pair the wisdom of older adults with the curiosity and enthusiasm of younger people creates a, a kind of magical circuitry where both are connected around the possibilities of self-exploration and, and amplification of all that it means to discover and live a healthy, thriving, and flourishing life. And music is one of the most powerful catalysts for that. We use it continually in almost all of our programming. And Jeremy talks about in his book these, these five territories, one being illness as the, quote, kingdom of, you know, between the, king, the two kingdoms, one of being well and one of being ill. Mm. And as someone who works with, with cancer patients and, and helping them sort of redefine their identities, but also deal with the, the pain of, of, their, of their treatment. Uh, do you see this as kind of two kingdoms that the people operate in? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think we often see in people that existential crisis, right? Because yeah. they used to, if you want to talk about the two kingdoms, they sure. used to be in this kingdom and now they move to the other kingdom and right. who can I be in this new kingdom, <laughs> right? So often, yeah, people begin to wonder, who, who am I now? But not only during cancer, but then especially also after cancer, during their survivorship, a lot of people struggle with extreme anxiety after that or other health problems because during that active treatment, cancer became their life, right? Cancer right. became so dominant. And now that has been taken away, of course, which is a good thing, but it leaves a gap. And so it creates a new existential crisis. Who am I going to be now, now that this cancer? So yeah, we see a lot of these existential questions uh, come up in our work. Uh, and as I explained we, uh, before the show, Marty, we use um, uh, in a study right now a music therapy protocol that mostly uh, uses songwriting to help people explore some of their cancer journey and put some of those things to words so that they can have conversations with their loved ones. They can have their loved ones listen to these songs and talking about connection, you know. Sure. It's often hard when you have cancer many patients are trying to protect their loved ones. They don't want to cause them even more sadness, even more worry. So they hold a lot of their emotions to themselves. And in through our music therapy work, we're trying to help create that bridge of communication again, that connection again through music, whether it's through writing a song that expresses what they're feeling or finding that song that really expresses mm. already what they're feeling and maybe having that as a communication starter with a loved one. Listen to that song together. 
yeah, so that because you can Because it feels talk. it feels safe. I mean, it, it feels, feels safer safe. to yeah. talk about tough stuff. Exactly. And also it's somebody else singing it, for example, right? If if it's not a song that you wrote and you listen to a song together and be able to start talking about some of those feelings that were expressed. It kind of test the waters. How is that conversation right. going with my loved one? And now can I really begin to focus the conversation more on what I'm experiencing and how this has been uh, for me. Almost up in a break here, but it picks up on what Jeremy talked about, about having conversations, telling our story, how important that is both creatively, but also to deal with with loneliness. And again, uh, talking with Yoka Brat, she's a music therapist, professor at Drexel University, where she leads the Creative Arts Therapies Program and the Music Creativity and Wellness Lab. Jeremy Nobel is with us as well. He's founder and president of the Foundation for Art and Healing, public health physician, a poet himself, author of Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. I should add that Yoka Brat uh, is, uh, plays piano, but she also does taekwondo. We're going to take a very short break and then get back to our conversation. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscoin talking with Jeremy Nobel and Yoka Brat about creativity, the healing powers of creativity. Jeremy, I'd like to go back to you. In your book, you talk uh, rather personally about uh, losing your father when you were a young man. In fact, you, you found him as he was having a heart attack, and he died shortly thereafter. And the kind of impact that the grief that you had had on you as a person, but also how that created a kind of loneliness in you. And I want to just have you talk about that a bit and then about how writing poetry has sort of helped you get out of some of those difficult feelings. Yeah. So it's a very personal story I shared in my book, which was, you know, really discovering my father dying of a heart attack in the living room of our home and obviously a very very traumatic event and it did lead to a period of time where I not only was sad at the loss of my father but for reasons I still don't fully understand I I thought it was in a way my fault that he had died on my watch hmm. now there's no rational reason for that explanation it's often related to the feeling some children have when their parents divorce they think it's their fault I suppose when you're young maybe you think you're in control of everything so re- you're accountable for everything but it had a real impact on me and feeling I had really um, let my father down. And that really made me withdraw, I think, in some ways from certain types of emotional connections with other people. I was sad, of course, the loss of my father. Now, at the surface level, I was able to engage with people, just like, as Yoka mentioned, many people with serious illness can engage sure. and connect and, and, and be with other people. But inside, I felt incomplete. And in a funny way, my early discovery of not just poetry, but photography filled that gap. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, to be honest with you, but it made me feel more in touch with the world, more positive emotions, an ability to get past the sense of loss, guilt, shame. And it was a bridge, almost a, um, a path forward from that very dark place. And that really, I, I feel very grateful for having discovered the power of creative expression early in my life, even though I don't think I had a name for it at the time. 
it just became something I oriented myself towards. Well, and it's so interesting how poetry, words, photography, images, that that sort of maybe unconsciously helped you, what, process what it was you were you were grieving and, and what you had lost? Absolutely. You know, I think about as we go through the world, like those those images or photographs you see of icebergs where some yeah, small right. percent of it is above the waterline, but the vast majority is below the waterline. I think what we're in touch with day to day in our conscious minds, what we think about and reflect on is obviously very important. It helps us make decisions and navigate the world. But I am increasingly thinking that, you know, a, the bigger part of the iceberg, our unconscious minds are below the waterline and how do we discover them? And I think what's very powerful about the arts, whether you're making art or sometimes beholding art, is it allows an engagement with the unconscious world. It allows the unconscious to become conscious. So you have a chance to make sense of it, navigate it, release yourself if it's a negative grip on you from some of those constraints and become your fullest and more expanded and in some ways better self. I mean, Yoke, it's interesting to think about, you know, making music or listening to music. It's a very different kind of experience, but maybe in the end, maybe not so much. Yeah, I think both can help with expressing emotions and processing emotions, right? But in a different way. When you listen to music, it might be more contemplative or reflective, or listening to music can suddenly bring up emotions that you didn't even realize were housed within you, right? And so you might suddenly find yourself crying to a piece of music and I think we probably have all had sure. that experience, right? You suddenly start crying, crying. You don't know what the tears are about, but gently be you begin to gain some insight maybe. And then when you play music, now you can actively express some of these emotions. But um, like Jeremy said, very often, in active playing music, it's it's getting in touch with a lot of what's under that water, right? And and getting those getting access to those emotions, and for many people, that it, that access portal to your emotions mm. might have been a bit damaged or is completely closed out of a self protective mechanism. So music can be very powerful to open that port, but we with that comes also a word of caution, right? That music can open up that gate and a lot of emotions can come flooding out and is there then somebody is there that social connection is there that support um, uh, for you to help you process or to, to help you feel safe to help to co uh, comfort you sure you, you play piano can I say mm -hmm. you're a pianist or uh, piano is there a difference I don't know yeah I wouldn't consider myself as a piano <laughs> but performer you play piano. but I play piano yes and yeah. is there a composer or a piece of music that speaks to you I mean every time you play it you you experience some really powerful emotion yeah I would say I'll re I my favorite composers to play are Mendelssohn oh. and um also impressionist uh, composers like uh, WC or Satie and um, yeah, I guess it helps me maybe get in touch with certain feelings that I want to experience or get in touch with. But there's also pieces of music that I really like to listen to. Um, I talked before, like when you when you feel sad and yeah. you just 
want to hear something sad. So then I, I love to listen to Gorecki, who is a Polish classical composer, and he has a symphony called the uh, Symphony of Sorrowful Songs. And it is so, so intensely <laughs> sad. And then you think, why would I want to listen to this? But it's beautiful. The right. aesthetics are just so incredible. And so, yeah, it feels very good to listen to that music. Well, and Jeremy, picking up on that is, is um, we should, and I, I get from your book, we should, we should embrace the kind of feelings that can come with loneliness or sadness. Um, that, that, that when we banish them, we, we cut off part of ourselves. And I, and I think, absolutely, and I, I think, you know, we live in a culture that sometimes makes us feel uh, it's it's bad to feel the deep emotions yeah. of yeah. grieving, of sadness, and so on, and yet they can be uh, a pathway, a signal, if you will, that there's something to explore and, and invite you forward into that explore, exploration. It's like the famous line from Robert Frost, the best way, the best way through, the best way um past is always through the and, and music the arts allows you to move forward to move through the discomfort the pain the distraction and you often find yourself on the other side in a state of of wonder or awe or kind of universal connection in a way that's very reassuring to many people well and picking up on what yoka said and, and going back to what what your book talks about jeremy is the importance of people telling their stories of having conversations that mean something um and not everyone is is willing or able to do that or even be the recipient of someone's you know unloading of their story if i can put it that way um how do you suggest people approach this part of of, of, I guess, undoing our loneliness. I think human beings are natural storytellers and natural story listeners. And yet in the digitization of modern life, whether <laughs> in lots of ways, it's become less common to have even these casual chances to share our stories with the checkout person at the grocery store because we're having, having our groceries auto-delivered uh, with workplace uh, sometimes becoming a set of online meetings where you don't have the casual conversation at the water cooler or sipping coffee in, in the rest area. And so I think we need to reestablish this kind of glorification of storytelling. Hmm. And I think the arts are a catalyst for that, but I think it's, it's a catalyst towards a natural state. We've always connected, not just to others, but to ourselves through our stories. And I think they could be as powerful a public health intervention as anything else we could imagine. And just uh, we sort of referenced this earlier, but Jeremy, going back to you and, and with more people working at home, I was walking through Philadelphia today. I see stores closing. I mean, whether yeah. the fact that, that so many of us are sort of withdrawing into our apartments or our houses, um, is that going to affect our sense of being either lonely or alone in the world? Well, it certainly isolates us, right? So if we're not around other people, the opportunity to have meaningful, authentic engagement gets significantly reduced. So I think, what do we replace them with? Well, we don't have to just stay in our homes, being digitally connected at work and so on. We can go for, go for social connections in a variety of circumstances and scenarios and start to invent a social matrix of connection opportunities. It's what the Surgeon General calls for in one of his pillars in the recent uh, right. advisory on social connection. How do we invent a culture of connection? And I think we're well on, on the way 
to understanding the urgency of it. I think the arts are a catalyst for it. And I think we'll find that it's very well embraced by people because engaging with the arts isn't just medicine. It's fun. It's playful. It's <laughs> inspiring. It's generally a positive experience. We just need to make it more available more frequently to more people. Indeed. And Yoko, go ahead. Yeah, I want to uh, <laughs> tell you, Jeremy, in, in one of our groups I led uh, with people with chronic pain, um, uh, it was a part of a research study, and it was a group protocol where people come together in a, a group music therapy for group music therapy sessions. And often nurses would come look through the window that was in the door to see what was going on because we <laughs> were just having so much fun <laughs> and there was so much energy and joy being expressed. And it spilled over into the hallways and often people would leave the group still kind of dancing and singing or chanting into into the lobby of the of the healthcare center so yeah making music with others can be a wonderful way to experience a lot of joy you know i was thinking during the, yeah. no go ahead jeremy go ahead i was, I was just going to say in many of the programs we do and and i write about them in the book i mean the book is called project on lonely it does talk about some of what we do in our programming but it's really an invitation to people to design their own project on lonely to imagine circumstances where they can bring people together to explore and experience this joy of connecting through shared stories and what you start feeling when you pull off these convenings of of people, many of them who don't even know themselves, know each other very well, um, is a kind of community effervescence, a bubbling up of energetic enthusiasm. And I think that's what Yoko was talking about, that it draws other people's attention. And then you get a snowballing effect where people really want to be part of this effervescence of human connection. And it's available to all of us. Well, I was thinking during the pandemic, I realized we're not over the pandemic yet, but in the real dark days of the pandemic, Yoka, um, going online and there were musicians doing performances and you could put a little money in the, you know, in the little money box there. But this, this impulse, this desire, this need to create music in this case was so palpable. Yeah, and also because then it could be shared, right? So often those videos were then shared with the wider world and everybody could enjoy and just be in awe of what people could create together while being all different parts of the world. Um, yeah, and it, it looks like people felt, even though you're sitting at your own computer, individual yes. screen, that yes. people had an incredible sense of, of feeling connected with others and a sense of purpose with creating music together um, online. Uh, we're actually right now doing a study with our Memorial uh, Sloan Kentering Cancer Center in New York, comparing virtual music therapy with virtual cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety management in cancer survivors. And uh, especially in a, uh, with people with cancer, an online uh, intervention is often desirable for many reasons, of course, uh, but it helps people feel connected, you know, get in touch with their emotions, have that emotional expressivity that is so important to combat loneliness as well. Um, so, yeah, now I think since the pandemic, more and more virtual type of treatments are being yeah. um, developed and, and implemented. 
And Jeremy, picking up on that, that, and we are living more and more in a virtual world, there are pros and cons, you know, that Mm -hmm. come with that in terms of our ability to feel connected to other people. What do you see as the pros and what do you see as the cons? Well, during the pandemic, we launched something, a a destination website called Stuck at Home Together. (laughs) We drew people from all over the country. They would post creative work, sometimes playlists of music they liked listening to, wanted other people to listen to. We had what we called uh, creativity circles where virtual online creative making sessions often hosted by guest artists who would give a little bit of art making lesson to, and then people would make art and share about it. So virtual connection definitely works. But I also think we there's, that in the virtual connection world, it's a little bit uh, limited in fully engaging with the presence of some other person, their physical nature and so on. So we encourage people to use virtual almost as a, uh, maybe uh, a way to connect with people, meet them and so on, but then see if together you can organize ways to be in person. I mm. think both of them are very important, very powerful, but nothing beats face-to-face connection. Yeah, I went to a concert a couple of weeks ago, and it was just so great to be in the fourth row and, and watch musicians perform. Absolutely. And, you know, just yeah. yoga, just to do their thing. Yeah, I think there's... Beyond um, the little box on our screen. Yeah. Do you know that there, there, is, um, there was a research study that showed that if you listen to music, so in your case, you were listening to music, right. if you listen to music alone, it can be effective for uh, releasing all, all kinds of hormones, dopamine, oxytocin, and so on. The feel-good and, stuff. And reduce your stress hormones. But if you listen to music together with others, those health benefits are actually amplified. So it's better to listen together in the <laughs> presence of others, not just virtually together, but actually in physical presence with other people. Well, a perfect place to end our conversation. Thank you to both of you for joining us today on The Connection. Yoko Brat, thank you for coming in. Thank you, Marty. And she is a music therapist professor at Drexel University, where she leads the Creative Arts Therapies Program and the Music Creativity and Wellness Lab. Jeremy Nobel, thank you for joining us today on The Connection as well. Pleasure to be connected. <laughs> I know. I knew we were going to milk that word. He's founder <laughs> and president of the Foundation for Art and Healing. Uh, he's also the author of a new book called Project Unlonely, Healing Our Crisis of Disconnection. Thanks for joining us today on The Connection. Uh, Every week we explore different aspects of what makes us human, what makes us unique. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. You can check out our website, whyy.org slash theconnection, and sign up for our newsletter. You can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of Radio, excuse me, of The Connection. Uh, Paige, Murray Bessler, and Debbie Builder, our producers. Thanks for joining us.